This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hey, family. Up next is my interview with Jose Antonio Vargas. Uh, I reached out to him because he was tweeting during the largest part of the unrest on the heels of the uh, killing of George Floyd. And he was saying some just amazing things, some insightful things. I said, I want to talk to him. I think it's so important during this time to just talk to people who are not like you, talk to people who are not from your community. He's a man that came here at the age of 12, did not know he was undocumented until he was 18. That story he shares with me is amazing. But who he is today and how he sees the world and what informs him, it just brought my perspective on a lot of things. And it just reminded me why it's so important that we don't live in our bubbles, that we don't hunker down and just hang out with people who are just like us, who think like us, who feel like us, but that we stretch ourselves a little bit and get out there and start to connect and make those connections with people. Jose Antonio Vargas, up next is that interview. I think Drew McCaskill is also in on that, so we we have a nice conversation. But let me know what you think. Follow me on Twitter at Karen Hunter, K-A-R-E-N-H-U-N-T-E-R. Some say I'm an actual Karen Hunter because, you know, Karen's now a, a slur for um, crazy white women. But um, I don't know how that happened. But anyway, let me know what you think. Use the hashtag podcast. Up next, Jose Antonio Vargas, my interview with him. I hope you enjoy. Joining us right now, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Let me welcome to the show for the first time, Jose Antonio Vargas. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Man, thanks for coming through. I've been watching you from the sidelines for a while, you know, um, your career. And I I called you a hero. You're courageous because you tell the stories most people uh, are either unafraid to tell or don't know how to tell. And so we get to see people's humanity through through the work that you do so i just want to thank you for that oh, as well thank you so much that means a lot coming from you but thank you so i i was watching twitter of course because that's where I, <laughs> I unfortunately get most of most of my uh information uh as far as what's going on in, in the world because i can't watch what passes for news on our cable outlets and i was watching what you were putting posting and things and i came across something where you were posting about uh, I think it was Univision and Telemundo and how they're reporting on what we're seeing, what, what's happening in the, in, the, in the country. How did you come t- to that? Because when I saw it, I was like, huh, I never would have thought that they were reporting it differently. Well, I mean, I think, so I'm, I'm Filipino. I immigrated to this country when I was 12 and then found out I was undocumented when I was 16 when I tried to get a driver's license. So I think ever since then, this was 1997, I think I've been always questioning <laughs> the legality of this country. Like, how can people... Wait, know, wait, wait, like, back, like back up for a second. Wait, 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 back yeah. up. Because I, I got to... And I know it's, it's in this story, Dear America. I know it's in your book. You know, but to think you're an American citizen and to find out that you're not when you go to get a driver's license, what was that conversation like with your mother? Well, yeah. So my mom sent me here when I was 12. You know, and she didn't tell me that I was being sent here illegally with a smuggler. I thought the smuggler was my uncle, but I'm Filipino. Everybody's an uncle. So I didn't know that he was the smuggler. So I didn't realize that they had that that they couldn't get a legal way to get me. So they had to smuggle me. But thankfully, though, Karen, so this is really important. Thankfully, you know, I was introduced to Toni Morrison and James Baldwin as early as I was. Mm -hmm. Right. 
because I think from the very beginning, this idea of questioning your right to be in this country, like who has the right to be in this country? And like what you saw when I was tweeting about everything that's been happening, I mean, really the first thing that I said was, we're assuming that Amy Cooper is just white, when in reality there are many Asian and Latina Asian Coopers out there, right? And then the way this issue has been framed by a very kind of East Coast media elite that thinks of this issue as a very black or white issue, when in reality, you know, I live in California. You know, I'm here in the Republic of Berkeley. And <laughs> here in California, right, Latinx people and Asian people constitute the majority, Right. So how are how are these Latinx Asian people who have gotten here post-1965 after the Immigration Act happened, which, by the way, would not have happened if the 1964 Civil Rights Act did not happen, meaning Latin people and Asian people are here on the back of activism by black people who have always questioned the legality of this country. He has always questioned, you know, the myths around this country. So for me, when we're talking about George Floyd and we're talking about what's happening right now, it is really important, right, that we include all these other people that in, in some ways gets kind of exonerated when these issues come up. So what I tweeted that you saw was that I was watching, you know, because I'm getting a bunch of immigrants tweeting at me saying, hey, Jose, like Univision is being really problematic about how they're framing this issue as just making it again about, you know, the angry black mob or making it about the fact that the rioters are all black people. Like, all of these stereotypes that, frankly, if all you know about, about black people is what the media tells you, then we're in a big problem, right? We're in and a big a problem. Deeper, huge problem. And it's way deeper than CNN and in many ways more insidious than Fox News, right? Mm. And we got to make sure that we're actually talking to everybody about it. And so, you know, I have an organization called Define American, and our job is right now, Karen, what I'm really thinking a lot about is what resources can we provide immigrant families, non-black immigrant families, about how they can talk to their uncles and aunties and cousins and nephews and nieces about what's happening. That's so powerful. You know, what was more insidious is, is knowing that Univision owns one of the largest black media outlet the root and very very yeah very smart brothers and and i'm like um very smart the root is yeah how how does that work why would you purchase something you know it's like that that whole you know they purchased it from you know from a group in 2015 and i'm like huh so i wonder if all of those snatched edges headlines and things are, are are what they see in black people that, that's what they expect of black people, those clickbaity type of stories that are sensational in a way that with the vernacular, when most of us don't really operate that way. We don't consume our news that way, but that's how it's being fed to us. So they're feeding well, us what the, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I, help me here. But I only wonder, I mean, I only wonder, though, how many uncomfortable and hard conversations are happening in newsrooms and a lot of these corporations about, look, like, I grew up in newsrooms. I was really lucky that, you know, my formative years in journalism was at the Washington Post, where there were a lot of African-Americans in leadership positions. You know, I was edited by black women pretty much throughout my career at the Washington Post. But that was, I didn't really realize it, that was an exception. The reality is there aren't a lot of black people in positions of power in newsrooms across America. I mean, all you got to do is look at who's ahead of a lot of these news divisions to see how they actually frame what's happening yeah right i mean i was i was just a, i mean a, 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 a friend of mine i'm a huge tony morrison fan and i had forgotten that she did this interview with um with um 
Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose, yes. 93. Yep. You know, she was being asked about the Rodney King riots. And here's Toni Morrison saying, what struck me most about those who rioted was how long they waited. This podcast is brought to you by CarShield. With all the uncertainty in the world right now, everyone's top priority is safety. And protecting your vehicle is crucial, whether you're on the front lines as an essential worker out there protesting or even making trips to the store. We rely on our cars a lot. And I actually want us to get out of debt. So hold on to your cars, pay off your car. But that also means you're going to need extended coverage. So go to CarShield. CarShield takes the worry away from car repairs. They have affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for cover repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. And the people at CarShield understand payment flexibility. That's a must. Monthly payments can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitments. CarShield gives you options others won't. You can choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped more than a million customers, so you drive with confidence and peace of mind knowing you got covered by America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can keep your family safe and save thousands for a cover repair. Give them a call, 800-CAR-6000, mention code KAREN, or visit carshield.com, use code KAREN, K-A-R-E-N, to save 10%. That's carshield.com, code KAREN. A deductible may apply. The restraint they showed, not the spontaneity, the restraint. They waited and waited for justice and it didn't come. I mean, so that's a perspective, right? Like how do we center right now, if you're a news organization and you're not centering black people, you're doing something wrong, right? And I think that we we have to hold all of these news organizations accountable to that. But how do we do that, um, Antonio? How do do we do that now when your paper, your good paper, and let me just shout out Danielle Belton, who I think is a is a G. Oh. She's the, the editor-in-chief over at The Root, so I'm not decrying yep. The Root because totally. I think she does a yeoman's job in spite mm-hmm. of the ownership. But how do we, you know, how do we, Jose, um, how do we hold them accountable when they're corporately owned? Jeff Bezos bought The Washington Post. Rupert Murdoch owns The New York Post. Uh, and I can go down the and list of... And The Wall of, Street Journal. And, yep. the, and The Wall Street Journal. You know, Mort Zuckerman bought my paper, the New York Daily News. You have a Pulitzer. You have a Pulitzer, yeah. but, but the, it's different now. I just talked today with a guy who worked at Time Life for 17 years, and we were lamenting the devolving, the devolution of media because it's all this kind of corporate, we're feeding these algorithms and these clicks, and we need the money, and it's, it's that facing, not us, not, not news facing. I, I mean, I got to say, by the way, like I was hired at the Washington Post by a woman named Sheriff Butler, an African-American woman whose job it was to make the Washington Post more diverse. And she was the one who recruited me. So and now I wonder how many other Sheriff Butlers are in newsrooms across this country. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to say that I actually think there are less people of color in newsrooms now than they were when I was getting started in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is really yeah. awful. So in terms of what we can do. I think there are those hard conversations that have to happen privately in these newsrooms um, that, that I'm sure are happening. But I think what's even more important or just as important is how do we hold them accountable now? I mean, I think the very publicness of this, I don't know about you, but, you know, in talking to my nieces and especially my nephews, because a lot of my, nep- a lot of my Filipino-American nephews here in the Bay Area, 
you know, like they're down with black people because they love hip hop or so they think, right? And so I was texting them this weekend saying, wait a second, you can't love black culture if you don't love black people, right? So how are you all examining all of your relationships right now? Are you calling out all your friends that are way too comfortable saying the N-word, which always makes me really uncomfortable? I was in a position once a few years ago when they were in my house, and, you know, they were blasting hip-hop. It was all my Filipino nephews. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, like, am I hearing what I'm hearing? And I thought to myself, you know, not in my house you're going to do that. I mean, do you even have black friends? Right? So these kinds of questions, right? So there's the personal accountability part, and then how do we hold the media accountable? But for me, right now, the most important thing is for immigrant community, I don't care if you're Chinese, Vietnamese, Mexican, or Filipino, talk to your relatives. So at Define American, we have kind of, look, I've been uncomfortable in this country since I found that I was here illegally. So I'm just sharing the uncomfortability, right? So we're really big on having uncomfortable conversations. So please go to defineamerican.com slash conversation, and we actually have a guide. We give you a guide to how to have these uncomfortable conversations with your relatives. Because, you know, it's so easy to call out strangers on Twitter. It's so much harder to go get your uncle. So please go get your <laughs> uncle. Right. You know, I, when, when you said that about, about taking, you know, not just taking family to task, but having a conversation with family members, asking asking hard questions and listening to their responses, right? Um, yep. I think about all of the all of just sort of the the misperceptions that are shared amongst people who are marginalized, right? And so I know that Filipino culture use it between you know Latin culture as well as Asian culture, and then living in the Bay Area. Talk to me about what that looks like when when you're so far removed from actual black people. Every, we're surrounded by black culture all the time, but you real. But most people, a lot of people, are really far removed from black people. So I think this this is why, for example, our work at Divine American is so media focused, right? Like how do we hold the news media and the entertainment media responsible for how people are portrayed and perceived? Even something as simple as, you know, this is a country we love to say, John F. Kennedy loved to say, that this is a nation of immigrants, right? When we say that, though, who do we leave out? You leave out Native Americans and you leave out African Americans who did not come here as immigrants. Of course, I'm, 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 not, I'm not including black immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa who have immigrated right. here, specifically post-1965, right? But the reality is the African-American experience is not an immigrant experience. Of course, there's the great migration from the south to the north, which is a totally different thing as well. So I think even knowing that, because there's all these kind of tropes that we fall into about we're a nation of immigrants, and then Asian people are the model minority, which, of course, what happens is then all of a sudden Asian people are being used against black people. So at Define American, actually, we just held the Black and Gold event a few weeks ago where we had Nicole Hannah-Jones um, from the 1619 Project at the New York Times, Franklin Leonard of the Blacklist, and then Prabal Garong, the fashion designer who's Asian, and John Chu, who directed Crazy Rich Asians, just to have a conversation, an actual real conversation, about what standing up in solidarity looks like. And Prabal, the fashion designer, said it means that we don't keep holding up this model minority myth. 
it means, for example, that knowing, so Nicole Hannah-Jones, of course, who just won her, we just won a Pulitzer a few weeks ago as well. Um, she said that part of the culturalization of coming to this country is being anti-black, right? Like you learn by coming to this country that proximity to whiteness and rejecting blackness is a way of becoming more and more American. So then how do we think about that? And then how do we actually acknowledge that from the school system, the justice system, the economic system, where people live? Why do they live where they live? All of these words, I remember when I was young, again, obsessed with Toni Morrison, um, she was saying, like, even the phrase inner city. Like, why did we have to call it inner city? Because that's where all the black people are, in the inner city, right? Mm. As if there was something bad about it, right? Underprivileged, at risk. Right? Minority. Minor- minority. Even the, that. What is that? That, right? right. And so I think for me right now, what I'm really hoping is all of us, Really look at the words we use and how we frame this issue. Yes. So I guess this is why, Karen, I was so excited when you reached out, because I think it is so important for non-Black immigrant communities and families to make sure that we say unequivocally and in solidarity that we are for Black lives and that what we're going to work on right now is dismantling white supremacy wherever we No, find. no, no, not supremacy, because it's not supreme. It's white nationalism. It's not white, white supremacy because you're, you're telling them that they're supreme and they like that. So, no, well, there's no supremacy. The, but but yeah. that's part of the lie, right? That's right. Part of the lie. So it's white nationalism, it's white fragility, it's, it's white mediocrity. It's, a, it's you know, it's all of that. <laughs> but it's Jose. Jose is writing is where you can follow him. Jose is writing. Jose Antonio Vargas. You keep coming back to Tony Morrison, who is my favorite, by the way. Oh, and I haven't quite I haven't quite recovered, you know, like. I don't really know where I would be in this country if I didn't discover her as early as I did. Tell us about that story. B- Drew McCaskill always says they love our rhythm but hate our blues, you know, oh, which gosh. I think is so proud. When Drew said that, I was like, that ran through me. They love our rhythm but they hate our blues. You're talking about your nephews listening to our music. Yeah. But they don't even have. But they don't know black people. They don't know black people. 70% of rap music is purchased by white, those white boys that are skateboarding out there with their hats to the back. They love our hip hop. They love our rap, but they don't love us. I don't know what the disconnect is, but tell me how you became uh, in love with Tony uh, yeah, Morrison. Well, I, I, you know, I got to give credit to Mr. Zayner, my eighth grade English teacher. He assigned the Blue Eye as our book for the book club in eighth grade. Mind you, I was three years coming into this country at that point. And, you know, I'm reading this book, and, you know, it's about Picola Breedlove, right, a black young girl who wanted to have blue eyes. And I'm coming from the Philippines. I didn't know Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson were black until I got to America, right? Like, we just called them Americans. I knew that they were, like, a different skin, but we didn't call people, you know, like, it just, that was not part of our paradigm. So then I get to this country, and I'm realizing that there are white people and black people, but because I look Asian and my name is Jose, people are like, what are you? So then I read this book, which, first of all, it's just, it's poetry, right? But then I was really confused by the book. And thankfully, I know I'm indebted to public libraries. So I went to the public, the Nanami Public Library, and then I looked up everything about Toni Morrison in this book. And then I found, you know, in, you know, it's Microfish, which is like the original Google, like yes. that big machine. <laughs> <thing in> <laughs> yes. so I found this interview between Toni Morrison and Bill Moyers. Mm. And Toni Morrison explains to Bill Moyers that she wrote this book. It was her first book. To say what happens when someone surrenders to the master narrative. And then Bill Moyer says, what is that? Is that life? 
And then Morrison says, no, the master narrative is white male life. The master narrative is people projecting onto you what they think you ought to be. So these little black girl who wanted to have a blue eyes, that's her surrendering to the master narrative of believing that she was ugly, that she was unworthy. And you got to love America, right? Because understanding that somehow freed an undocumented gay Filipino, me, from not surrendering to whatever this master narrative is. So that's what started. And, of course, Morrison led to Baldwin, right, led to, of course, you know, Maya Angelou. So it just led to kind of me, and I was really fortunate and privileged that I was exposed to this so early. So from the very beginning, I was already questioning America. And I'm, I'm saying this thinking, how many states, for example, banned the blue eye? Right. Like how many in this country, African-American literature is considered like a side thing. Like, you know, they don't consider it the central thing. Right. And so that's why I think for me at this moment, it's important for immigrants, for all of us who have come here, especially post-1965, to try to reexamine how we understand this country and the sources of which we understand this country from. And to me, Toni Morrison has to be at the very middle of that. You know, she to me as Karen, you probably share this, the most consequential writer in the English language. You know? Absolutely. When, when, when somebody, had, I think it was Charlie Rose, uh, no, it was, a, it was a white woman, had the audacity to ask her, can you write about white people? <sighs> yeah, and Bill she, Moyers. That was, was that Bill, Bill Moyers? Moyers? It was, I looked at the video. Man, video. she yeah. lit right. his ass up so right. good. But, you know, I ne- as a writer myself, I never questioned until she said it, that everything that we've done growing up is through the lens of the standard. And the standard is always that, white, that due north. And so you write in a way, you know, that's what also makes Zora Neale Hurston so powerful. Because oh she God, said, no, 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 we're going to speak in our language. And, and ever since reading those, because I was an English major, you, I started saying, why do I care to speak any other way? Yes, of course, I know how. I know how to construct a sentence. But that's not, that, that doesn't define me. So I should be able to, as long as you understand, and it, it really freed me as well. So I, I'm, I'm loving this conversation because there are people out there that need to go down that breadcrumb, uh, that, that rabbit hole that you went down with those breadcrumbs to discover those things because you discover yourself through, through great writing. And, and, and but Karen, too, like she was a historian. It's almost like, I mean, if you look at her books, right, 10 books, which is kind of like August Wilson going through the cycle of African-American yes. experience through theater, right? I mean, the last book I, that I really read was Home, right, which oh, is about when the, Korean vet, when the Korean vet, Frank Money, fought the war to Korea as a black man and then went back to America and then had to fight another war in this country, of course, the war against race. So for me, reading her books has been a way to try to understand the construction of the American narrative, right? And how black people, and now how Latinx people and Asian people and Native Americans, but how do we all unite together, right? To try to figure out how we can recreate and redefine what America is. And then how do we talk to white people about this without them getting all like defensive and getting all like, you know, that's an interesting question. Part of it too though is, how do we talk to each other about it, right? How do we how do we engage each other with a respect for each other's uh, history, with a respect with a respect for each other's culture, with a respect for um, each other's plight in this country without 
without diminishing or dismissing it, right? Because I feel like that there's a reason why so many people who have been marginalized in this country do not speak to each other, do not unite with each other, do not see each other as quote-unquote allies. Before we even go out to think about, okay, let's get white allies, how do we talk to each other amongst amongst ourselves as an incredible, powerful majority when you look at actual numbers, right? When you look at when, uh, you know, 92% of the population growth that's happened in this country over the last 15 years has come from people of color, black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, and not all of that is immigration, right? And so we've got to figure out a way to communicate and respect and engage and celebrate and trust, number one, trust each other. Where do we start with that building that bridge to trust each other as, quote, unquote, minority groups in this country? I have to say, by the way, this is where I think the role of media Right. So I ended up making this documentary for MTV a few years ago now called White People. It's like a one hour long special. It's on YouTube. Check it out. Because, you know, I am deportable. So I figured just push as many buttons as I possibly can. <laughs> Are you still deportable? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a doc- I'm too old for DACA. I was four months too old for DACA. Um, but look, you know, I, I mean, I love to say this. It's true. Like, you know, Tony Morrison taught me when I was a kid that freedom was in my mind. Right. It's in my mind. So they can go try to deport me. But what are they going to do? <laughs> Like, I'm not afraid of Donald Trump. Um, but, but to your point about the unity part of this, the, the trusting part of this. So when I made a documentary for MTV, we, we did a study that said 75% of white people lived in predominantly white towns, and 90% of white people had predominantly white friends, which meant, again, that so much of how they think about us and how we think of each other is based on the media that they consume. So, like... I was really, I've been really struck with Insecure, the HBO show this, uh, this, this year, the season, and about how they're handling interracial relationship, right? And that relationship, like, you know, like, I'm, I'm, I can only imagine how many people are being liberated from watching an Asian man and a black woman have, like, have that kind of relationship on primetime TV, right? So h- how do we talk about this country, not just white versus black, but, you know, Latinx and black, Asian and black, mm-hmm. my, my nieces and nephews who are half Filipino and half black. And given how racist some of my own relatives are, you know, like, again, we were colonized by the Spanish. So colorism is huge in the Philippines, right? The lighter skin you are, the more mestizo you are, the better. And, you know, I have, I, I have one niece, Summer, um, who's half black, half Filipina. And since she was a kid, I had to make, I had to like, along with my other cousins, had to make sure that she didn't hear it whenever the aunties made a comment about, oh, she's getting too dark, you know, like, make sure she doesn't spend too much time in the sun. So we had to intervene. Or like when, when somebody says, oh, her hair is getting too kinky. What's wrong with that? Is that, a, is that bad? Right? So this is where I think, again, the role of our families and the role of our relatives and the conversations we got to have that is where I'm finding the most work to be doing and also the source of hope, right? And the source of hope that we can actually do this family by family, that I can't wait for CNN or MSNBC or Fox to do this work. I got to go do this work. Mm. I just want to sit with that for a minute. I've, I've been uh, 
that's been the challenge day one on this show. I started um, borrowing a phrase from Francis Cress Welsing, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, the global majority, because yeah. if, I, if I kept saying it, we're not minorities, we're not minor, we're not small, we're large, we're the majority. I'm sitting right here with a globe behind me where Africa has been purposefully diminished, right? The cartographers have made it really small when in fact the continent can fit China, the Americas, Russia, Europe, all of that can fit into India, into Africa. That's how big, it's five times larger than what I grew up believing. And that was on purpose. So you, you constantly make people small so that they feel small and then you tell them that this is the height that they can reach, but that doesn't exist. And even the notion of whiteness, you said you don't want them to cringe, but what is whiteness? What does it mean to be white? Oh, it's not a thing. So, it's a, so well, you're cringing but, right now, but it's not a thing. It's made no, up. I, I got to bring James Baldwin into this conversation. I, I remember when I heard this when I was in high school, it was a video and Baldwin looks into the camera and says, I'm only black if you think you're white. I'm only black if you think you're white. I was so confused, Karen. I was like, what is he saying, right? What is this man saying? And then, of course, as I got older, whiteness is a construction. This idea that we think, again, the master narrative, right? Whiteness is the default, the center. I would argue that it doesn't only hurt people like us who aren't white, but I actually think it also hurts white people who can't carry that burden. They don't know what it is either. So when I made White People for MTV, the inspiration was when I was at the University of Georgia in Athens, which I didn't know was a conservative school. I got invited, I went, and then a bunch of college Republicans showed up at the event. You know, people of color would always get asked where we're from, so I've gotten into this habit of asking white people where they're from. So I started asking the guy, hey, where are you from? And he was like, oh, I'm American. I know that, but where are you from? And he said, I'm white. Well, white is not a country. Like, where are you from? And then he looked at me with an empty kind of like, I don't know. So wait a second. You're obsessing over Mexico and the border and the wall, and you don't even know where you're from? Right? Yeah. Right? Like, where did you come yeah. from? How did you get here? Who paid? If you can't answer those three questions, you have Ooh. no right to ask what, anyone. Wait, what are those questions? <laughs> where did you come from? How did you get here? Who paid? Now, black people especially people descendant of slaves who were forced to come here to build this country. Nope. They have a very, very special relationship with those three questions. I, the Philippines, $4,500 illegally smuggled, right? If you don't know how to answer those questions, don't talk to me about borders and walls you don't understand. Mm. Wow. Jose Antonio Vargas. All right. Um, this, this needs to be a regular thing. I need you I need oh. you to come through. <laughs> well, I would um, love, Karen, to collaborate more with you at Define Americans to figure out how we can unite and actually yes. have some real more uncomfortable, but yeah. hopefully actually constructive conversations. I'm here for it. This is, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to get, but I, I was watching you on Twitter. I was like, I need this man on the show. I want, I want to <laughs> know him. I've been watching you from afar. I'm glad to see you up close. You are everything I imagined and more. Um, your oh, work is amazing. Uh, yeah. Jose is writing is where you can find him. Define American American dot yep. com. And I, I tweeted out the one with the conversation because people need to start having that. Uh, even folks that are not uh, Asian or Latino, Latinx and what have you. We all need to have that conversation. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate Thank you so you. much for having me. All right. Yeah, yes. Jose Antonio Vargas. Follow him for real. Like 
for real. He'll be back. 866-801-8255. I'm going to be talking with Bakari Sellers. Uh, he's coming through his book. He's got a new book, too, My Vanishing Country. Looking forward yep. to that. Drew, Drew sticking around. Uh, and, and during this time of change, Drew, they, uh, ZipRecruiter wants you to know, know that they have not changed. All right. They're still doing what they've always done, which is helping people find work and helping businesses find the right people for their open roles. So if you're looking for a job, ZipRecruiter is working with you to find the right job really fast. They are dedicated to helping you get hired from caretaking to delivering food and goods and uh, building medical facilities, supplying protective equipment, and so much more. In fact, ZipRecruiter's app will send you up-to-date job openings so you can be one of the first to apply. And if you're actively hiring, ZipRecruiter will invite candidates to apply to your most urgent roles, making it easier and faster to reach the people you need. By connecting people who need jobs and companies that need people, ZipRecruiter is working with all of us so we can keep moving forward. So let's work together. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. All right, Drew sticking around. This is a uh, man, that, uh, Jose, man. Yeah. That was not what I expected, and I and I mean that in the in in the in a great way. It was better than I expected. It was more than I expected. Um, his perspective was so different. Uh, I think when I I always think about how how wrong sometimes we get the West Coast because people think about the West Coast and they're thinking, well, it's California, it's super liberal, but tech, the West Coast is very conservative and race relations between, you know, between black folks and lots of Asian communities, the Korean community comes to mind. Uh, our race relations between black folks and, and a lot of the Hispanic community. Like I think about that and they're not, they're not what we would think because we're so typically the, you know, the media narrative is so focused on all the batshit crazy stuff that white folks are doing to us. Right. That, you know, we don't oftentimes t- um, talk about some of the things that are happening regionally and some of the regional race relations. And so his perspective was so interesting. It was dope. It's but, you so know, dope, but we, we remember the teenager it, that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say part of it to me, I think, though, Karen, is the fact that here's somebody who not just appreciates culture, but 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 some work on studying history too oh but tony morrison it was the bluest eye and there has to be an entry point for people to to see themselves or to see the world um and he didn't have a vested interest in that to see this but did and it awakened things i mean literature is so important which is why i I tout reading which is why i'm doing these history lessons every week with with dr Greg carr because it's important for us to read 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 because that's the opening gateway to learning 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 but you know that I walk a tightrope because I recognize, particularly in the West Coast, there's friction between the Mexican-Americans and the black Americans that live in certain neighborhoods in this country. Uh, throughout the, you know, I mean, New York, you got the Dominicans and the Puerto Ricans, and they don't necessarily like the blacks, you know, and there's, there's all of this friction, but it's baked in. And if I yeah. can just let folk know, you've been trained to not like us. Anti-blackness is your passport into America. To tell your children not to bring home somebody darker than you because you recognize that they're going to have a harder time out there. I can't blame an abuela for telling their their granddaughter to not get with Puffy. I can't be mad about that because she recognizes that your granddaughter is going to have an easier time in America the lighter she is. But what does that say? What does that mean? It's crazy. I can tell you that, you know, I 
I dated a number of of Dominican guys when I was in New York. Um, and I had a guy tell me, he was like, oh, my family would be completely okay with me dating you because we're not going to have kids. He's like, but my sister couldn't date you. Word? Wow. Wow. That's what I'm talking about. So we're going to do the global majority. We're going to welcome in our Asian brothers and sisters, our Latino yeah. brothers and sisters. We're going to have conversations, and there needs to be more people like Jose Antonio, Antonio Vargas uh, who gets it. And I'm grateful that he came through because I didn't know what to expect because I don't pre-screen anybody. I just invite you on, and we're going to have a conversation. That's what I do. That's how I do my thing. <laughs> 